This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden, and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. How's it going, Miles? I am fueled by way too much coffee today, Andrew. That's good. It is uh, it is the end of the year crunch uh, for everybody, but especially us over here at the paper, uh, trying to get a bunch of cool issues coming out to people before the end of the year, uh, working on our year in review right now, which is uh, kind of a, a fun look back at a not-so-fun year. Uh, but it, it maybe you can add to this a little bit, but interesting to look at kind of the way that stories unfolded, especially going back to January, going through February, and then seeing the turn in March to just a completely different uh, thing. Seeing those first two months, it was like looking into uh, a parallel universe almost uh, compared to the the type of story that we've seen since March. But uh, what, what have your uh, takeaways been as you've been peeling back through the year? Yeah, looking back at those, same thing. I mean, those first couple of months almost don't even seem like they were from this year at this point. And especially for me, digging through the news part of it, looking at those first couple of weeks and and being reminded that we thought this was going to be a, f- a couple of weeks maybe. And I remember sitting with the fire chiefs and and hearing Chris Heck say, yeah, I've, I've, I've got a fire chief friend in Vermont who says that they might actually be looking at a, at a stay home order sometime in the next few days. Like, and, and thinking that that just seemed crazy and far-fetched. And then how quickly it changed to 24 hours later. It's like, yep, we're looking at that in Wisconsin too. Um, right. It's just kind of wild how much it changed so drastically um, in that like first week or two of March. No, I agree. I remember hearing rumblings about COVID-19 as it was kind of overseas in February and March. And then it really did feel like in a matter of two weeks, everything changed. We went from like really starting to talk about it and take it seriously one week to being home the next week. It was that rapid. Yeah, it was. I I looked at a, um, a note that we had in the paper in January that was a um, an unexpected spike in flu cases in Wisconsin. That came at the end of December, early January, and it does it does make you wonder. Like, was there some hint of the virus already here back then? I don't. I wouldn't say that with any level of confidence, but you can't look at that without asking yourself that question of like, hmm, were we already seeing the first cases earlier than we thought? But- right. Uh, well, it. I, I think it should be said that it is kind of miraculous to look at how we were, you know, just starting to talk about this stuff in March, and now here we are in the middle of December, and we already have a vaccine that's being rolled out. I think just historically, the the monumental nature of that, I, I think, is important to talk about, uh, and we should also talk about, you know, what. COVID-19 vaccine availability is going to look like in Door County coming up. Uh, Door County Medical Center put out a statement last week kind of laying the groundwork for what the next couple of months may look like if everything goes well. Uh, What can you tell me about where we're at in Door County in terms of vaccinations and when things are going to roll out and to who? Well, talking to a lot of healthcare professionals, I have some friends in the industry elsewhere in the country who've already been vaccinated at this point who work with uh, very vulnerable patients. Um, the county, a lot of the folks locally tell me they're expecting it end of December, early January for some of those healthcare workers and vulnerable populations. Um, and we know that for the most part, Door County will be receiving the Moderna, I think is how you say it, vaccine, not the yep. Pfizer vaccine, based on uh, the different storage needs for each one. The Pfizer vaccine requires uh, much more uh, deep freeze uh, storage space. <laughs> sure. And that just isn't available in Door County. So they will will be getting the Moderna vaccine, either one. I think most of us would just take anything. <laughs> yeah. But there's still a, a big debate about how this is going to roll out to us in Door County and nationwide. They have, sometimes they talk about it, maybe start, starting to hit the general population in April. Potentially, I've seen timelines where you have enough vaccinations, assuming pe- enough people accept the vaccination potentially having that herd immunity level in June or July. But then there's also uh, some level of concern that that might not, we might not get there until the fall, even November of next year, in a worst case scenario, depending on how well the rollout goes and how well the messaging goes. 
there's already been some concern about the rollout now as we have a lot of vaccines sitting in a warehouse because our administration hasn't allocated them quickly enough. Yeah, that that is definitely the the next key piece of this puzzle moving forward is actually trying to figure out what this timeline looks like. I think for all intents and purposes, I've got my money on kind of a, a fall reopening, so to say, or, or things starting to get back towards normal in fall. Because if you think about like March being... Uh, a more major rollout for the general population in most places. March, April, May is kind of the, that's going to be the sweet spot for the people who want to get vaccinated, getting vaccinated quickly. Um, and then you're into June, July, and August. I think you'll you'll still see a lot of people getting vaccinated then. I mean, it all depends on what supplies look like too. And uh, I'm sure that there's going to be situations where more people want vaccines than the supplies actually allow for. Uh, but th- of course, there will be people who don't want to get vaccinated as well. And so building that kind of pocket of extra room in towards the fall, I think is a smart thing to do right now. So if if you're you know planning on reopening a business or looking at what you're going to do for next year, I, I would think it's going to be kind of the same thing that we've been looking at all of this year for you know at least another half of a year. Who knows what fall is going to look like? Hopefully things you know are are expedited in this and things kind of roll out quickly and people are able to get vaccinated and we can look at maybe a summer that looks different from this summer. But I. At least from everything that I'm reading and just kind of how I'm thinking it's going to go, I I would guess probably fall is a good timetable. So I am substantially more confident than you are um, in, well, there's a couple things. I don't think that the country has the stomach to go through continued restrictions for another summer. So I think whether it's the right decision or not, there will be a, a greater level of back to normal for better or worse. But I also think like there is a pretty good chance that the vaccines start to open up things, at least for, for a portion of the population, a little more quickly than we we might think. Because, you know, you think of one of the big issues for, for hospitals and healthcare facilities, and the reason their capacity is diminished comes down to people. If you get healthcare workers infected and they ha- they can't work, or they get sick and they die, you, you're eliminating a good chunk of the people that care for people. By having that population vaccinated, you actually increase hospital capacity nationwide. And then by vaccinating the people who are most susceptible, the elderly, the people in nursing homes, you then also increase hospital capacity, which means that the number of people who die when they get this go down because you have more workers and more beds and more facilities to treat them. So that alone makes a a big difference in in how we handle the virus. It's one reason why people are surviving now and the death rate has gone down is just because we've learned so much about it. So you combine that with greater resources, that helps a lot. And then as you start getting to more of the most vulnerable populations, the people most likely to go to hospitals as they get vaccinated and don't start filling up the hospitals, the rest of society can start to do things a little more loosely and and normally. I'm not saying that's going to happen right away, but I think you probably see that come May, um, maybe April in those terms, because once you get the, the people who are most likely to die and suffer the worst illnesses from this vaccinated, then this actually does start to look like a lot of our more common viruses that we deal with as they as they happen. So I think that might change. And I know that like Anthony Fauci will say he thinks fall for normalcy. I just don't know that we have the stomach to do that as a as a population. And I listen to uh, Andy Slavitt, who's got a great podcast called In the Bubble, where he talks through this, talks through this with medical professionals in a very detailed scientific way. On the flip side, he says, I think we, you know, with the vaccine here, we're, we're getting close to a much better lifestyle, possibly by June of next year. But because he thinks we're going to get lax and because of what we're seeing in the country now, he thinks we actually might double our number of deaths over the next couple of months just because we don't have the stomach to make the smart decisions right now. Sure. I I would also like to stress, though, that like in terms of precautions, social distancing and masking, uh, I I do think that that should continue to be a part of our our way of life as we move forward into next year, uh, probably into the fall, just because there is no way to tell who is vaccinated and a vaccine does not guarantee uh, anything. Uh, It certainly will, in most cases, severely limit the severity of the illness, uh, but it doesn't make you immune to it. And it doesn't mean that you're not uh, carrying 
the virus at any point. So uh, in terms of opening restaurants back up, taking masks off, not social distancing, returning to those types of normals, I think that that's still a dangerous thing. Because in my mind, wearing a mask has always been about the protection of others. Um, and, and when we're all wearing masks, we're all keeping each other safe. When that starts to go away, uh, you know, if I if I get vaccinated and I have COVID nineteen, but it's not affecting me in any way, uh, that doesn't mean that I'm not still spreading it. And so, uh, being a part of that, you know, getting together with other people, those types of things, vaccines, I feel like are a great way to, in the short term, allow you to feel more comfortable within your personal circle. Uh, but I don't think that they are a I'm vaccinated, I'm immune, I'm good to go. Let's jump back out and do what we used to do type of thing. I still think that there's going to be quite a bit of a buffer zone at the very least just to protect each other as we approach something uh, that that looks a little bit more like normal. In a in a perfect world, that, that might be the case. I just think a lot of people just won't do that. And at a certain level, I think they may not need to be as locked down. I think masks, I'll probably wear one through the summer into the fall, just in terms of making it easy for other people to know that I'm being safe <laughs> and putting other people at ease, even if I had the vaccine. Um, just like anybody who's actually already had COVID, you might just want to wear your mask just to, well, first of all, we don't know everything about it yet anyway, about how well it lasts. And we may find out that the vaccine doesn't work. I hope not. <laughs> but all indications well, are that it does because not only are people getting the shot now, but there are people who have gone through the trials for months already. So if we were seeing a lot of bad news about it, we'd actually already be getting that. Right. And and that's that's what I wanted to stress is what you just said in terms of, of, of your wearing a mask. I'm sure that in the coming months, there are going to be a lot of stories of people who are entering restaurants that require masks or entering businesses without a mask. And instead of the excuse being like, well, I have a doctor's note or my freedoms or something like that, the excuse is going to be, well, I don't have to wear a mask because I got vaccinated. And that is that's the thing that I'm worried about as we move forward is people throwing caution to the wind and using their vaccine as a way to infringe on other people's safety who haven't been able to become vaccinated yet. That's that's my worry as we approach March. Yeah, but be clear. I mean, you you and I live in a, a little bit of a safety bubble. There are tens of millions of Americans living that way already. So once you get the vaccine, tens of millions more will also live that way. So, so it's it's gonna be it's going to be very interesting to to watch that flow. Um, but we have a, a story in this week's issue that kind of talks about the the risk reward of <laughs> trying to trying to move too fast maybe or or throw caution to the wind on this. Right. So, um you talked to Tamara Gillette uh who was diagnosed with COVID in October, correct? Yeah. Uh I've been I've talked to several people who have had either a COVID illness in the family or been impacted by this or a family member who died throughout this slog in Door County with the virus. But to date, all of them had not wanted to tell their story on the record. They just didn't want to be the, the face of COVID or for COVID to be the reason that their dad or their mother was remembered. So they didn't want to tell that story publicly. And, and in a small town like ours in Door County, I try to be very cognizant of that and respect people. Right. And it's especially when they're going through loss or suffering with a disease like that, that's not when I want to put them on the spot and try and force them to tell that story. But right. I did finally, Tamara was the first person who was really willing to tell their story and what they went through. Yeah. And we, it's interesting in terms of the, the people that we've kind of spoken to and the people that we featured, I remember we had talked to Dave Lee now early on about, about his experience with COVID and he had a, a pretty different experience than, than what, what you would imagine most people have. Uh, he, you know, didn't even know that he had COVID until he was able to get an antibody test. Uh, he just had kind of a run-of-the-mill sickness where he felt very tired, uh, but didn't have any of the severe symptoms that that many other people do. Uh, Tamara, on the other hand, did experience and is still experiencing uh, some much more severe symptoms from the virus and was, in fact, one of the 60-something people who have been hospitalized in Door County. Yeah, and she she had what um, Dr. Jim Heiss, I, I talked to him about her Tamara's story just to make sure that this was typical and make sure that the treatment regimen was indeed what they tend to use for people at Door County Medical Center. Tamara was, she said she's not, she wasn't like a hardcore lockdown person, but she was careful. She wore the mask most of the time. She's not a super social person anyway. She tends to enjoy going camping or riding 
ATVs or UTVs with her husband uh, up in the UP. So generally pretty safe and but not like a, a lockdown person, not a, one of those people who is afraid to leave their home. And she believes she caught the virus from a restaurant worker that she later found out had, was working, even though they had gotten tested, but was not quarantining later turned out to be positive, And she's pretty certain that 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 was how she got it. And she had like a, a small cough, was talking to a friend, describing this little dry cough she had and otherwise not feeling very sick. And the friend said, you that sounds a lot like what my husband had. And he's he's really sick. He has covid. You should go get tested. So they went and they got tested and they got the rapid test. And uh, she, both she and her husband tested positive and they were shocked. They said, wow, I really wouldn't have guessed that we had it. And they go home and for a couple of days still don't feel much in the way of symptoms. Her husband never really felt very many symptoms of it. But about five days later, again, thinking she had a very mild case, she just was suddenly hit by a ton of bricks. And she found herself with no energy to get out of bed. She struggled to walk across the room. She, in fact, passed out three separate times. One time hitting her face, her face pretty hard as she went down and getting pretty severe bruising around the eye. And eventually, like at, at one point, her husband goes to get her out of bed and she just can't do it. She's so hit by this that she can't bring herself to get out of bed and get dressed. And that's when her husband says, all right, we're taking you to the hospital. We got to get this checked out. So they take her to the hospital and he drops her off at the front door. He can't go in with her. They immediately get her on oxygen. They immediately put her on medications to deal with uh, blood clots to alleviate any potential for that. And she's in the hospital from that point on for five days in the ICU on oxygen and going through the the treatments that they have for it now with uh, remdesivir and a steroid that they give people uh, to alleviate swelling. And so she just, at that point, she goes in the hospital and then she can't see anybody. So just hearing her go through this and she's not a, she's not elderly. She's 58. She's otherwise good condition. She's an active person. Their only comorbidity that she said she had was that she takes a medication for rheumatoid arthritis that is known to um, affect your, your immune response. And so it kind of weakens your immunity or weakens your immune system. So she suspects that that might have led to her to get a much more severe reaction than her husband. But, right. you know, that's a, a pretty frightening thing. And she ends up getting out of the hospital after five days. They send her home. She said she felt like she still could be in the hospital because she still felt so weak and, and worn down. She said she was stuck in her bed for another five days once she got home and finally started to recover. And after a month or two, she's about six weeks out now. I talked to her again last week. She said she feels like she's probably about 95% recovered. But her, she doesn't know what the long-term impact is. And this was a case that I thought was almost more important to tell than the death of somebody, because we tend to measure this by deaths. We measure it by cases and deaths. But there's a lot in the middle there between just testing positive and dying. And there are tons of people who are hospitalized who go through a pretty traumatic experience, probably racking up pretty significant medical bills and very, very scared. Um, and they don't know what those long-term impacts are going to be. So I thought hers was a, a good story to tell of this whole other section of this that we just, we don't really keep tabs on, on them because we're like, well, if you didn't die, it's okay. It's kind of like the way we look at war. We count deaths, right. not all the soldiers who go through so much tra tragedy and, and trauma and then come home and have to deal with that forever. Right. Yeah, I think I think one interesting takeaway from this story is the timeline of events, right? So she wasn't sure when she, like the date that she actually had contact with the virus. Uh, but from the time that she got her positive result, five days afterwards, she is, or six days afterwards, she's in the hospital. Like you, you go and you may have no symptoms for a week. And then all of a sudden your symptoms come on very quickly and they last a long time. So six days uh, six days, two like severe symptoms, five days in the hospital, another five days of bed rest, and then, you know, continuing still not feeling totally back to normal all the way up through, uh, like you said, just a couple weeks ago. Um, it, when you think about like getting sick, you might think like, oh, I was totally knocked on my butt for a weekend, or, you know, I had this thing for like 10 days that was, you know, pretty annoying. But to imagine like, you know, 20, 30 days of dealing with something, and that's if you're lucky to not have any sort of long-term effects that can take you years after or well into, you know, the rest of your life. So just thinking of the timeline of that type of thing, and also like, 
you know, being exposed to the virus, not having any symptoms for, you know, however, however many days, 10 days or something like that, uh, but still being contagious that entire time. That's like, that's the most scary thing about this for me is I, I like to count every day after I'm exposed to anybody new or anything new and being like, Okay, well, after, you know, this weekend on Tuesday, then I'll be able to kind of breathe a sigh of relief because then I'm kind of in the clear from this last incident. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's one of those things where it's like, uh, if I got it, I'd probably get very sick. My wife, maybe not so much. Um, Our child, maybe, maybe not. Um, It's, you know, there's not a ton of evidence that that, you know, toddlers are affected by it in a a major way but um my my parents definitely like my parents are definitely on the list of of most at risk so right. trying to you know it when, when i'm talking about masking or when i'm going out and, and talking about this type of stuff and the precautions that i use it's for me yes it's for my wife and my kid yes but it's mostly for you know my in-laws because i know that if if anything were to happen if they were to be exposed that it would be it would be really really bad yeah and i had you know i i had a friend who's actually a couple of years younger than me, who's very healthy, who had COVID, like kind of sick, but not not crushed by it. But then after 13, 14 days, thought thought it was over, then suddenly got pneumonia. And COVID related, I, I guess it, it, it's interesting. I think they would call it like COVID-induced <laughs> pneumonia or something like that. But mm. um, so at the 14-day point, thought it was done. And then the next day just got knocked on their butt again, went into the hospital and ended up that they had pneumonia. And that's a person in their late 30s. You know, so you think of what that would do. Again, that person is recovering, doing well. But I can't imagine if I got hit by that and suddenly had to miss a couple weeks of work. Like, Even if you do end up being fine, like nobody wants to miss work. Nobody wants to be knocked out. I've never spent a night in a hospital, you know, for for myself, other than waiting for my child to be born. But like right. not for a medical emergency. My my father is 78 years old. I don't believe he's ever spent a night in the hospital. Um, so most of us have never been that sick. <laughs> uh, Miles, is there anything else on COVID this week that we should talk about before we move on to something a little bit uh, lighter, a little bit more interesting maybe? Uh, well, I guess it is worth noting the the cases are not as, we're not seeing the, the, the number of cases that we saw in middle of November when the the case counts kind of peaked in Door County, but they obviously are still much higher than they were in September and early October. We did see Door County reported its 12th and 13th COVID-related death this week. Uh, the, the, you know, we continue to see hospitalizations in Door County for COVID-19, although a little bit lower than they were at the peak. It's kind of interesting to sit here and see it calm down just a little bit in Door County. Meanwhile, it is when you check your email inbox and you get something from uh, the Wall Street Journal or, or the Times, I mean, it is it is getting very scary in other parts of the country. My sister messaged me from Los Angeles this morning where they actually they're talking about five to seven hour waits for people when they get brought to the hospital in an ambulance to be admitted right. to find a bed right. for them. So very scary for other places in the country right now, even if it is calming down slightly in in our region. So with that, why don't we move on to uh, something that I've been doing for a couple of weeks now. Uh, Pretty excited to talk about it. Miles, I wanted to ask you a question and just off the top of your dome, uh, how would you you answer this? How do you think actors act? Hmm. You know, that's a, it's a question I, I ask myself all the time when I watch stuff, like, how do you do that? How do you play that role? How do you get yourself in that headspace? I, I really don't know. <laughs> well, and that's that's kind of the interesting thing because I feel like most people uh, I, I, there's two camps for most people who kind of think about this question. So I feel like most people either say like it's all about like pretending or like putting yourself in that place, right? But I I would argue that very little of of what most actors do, especially in like dramatic roles, is putting yourself in that place, right? Because when you when you've got an actor who's playing somebody who it, you know has experienced incredible trauma or lost a loved one or a child or something like that, uh, in in a movie, putting yourself there for a day to to get the scenes done, that's you know tough but manageable. On stage, if you're doing the same thing and you need to put yourself in that awful place every single day for months, you know, 200 performances, that's impossible. So it's, it's really not about putting yourself there all the time. And the other thing that I feel like most people are familiar with is method acting, right? Like, you know, you know what method actors are, right? 
Yeah, I think uh, Brando was considered like a, the king of the method actors, if I have that right. Yep, Marlon Brando was definitely one of the first people in America to really uh, to really take the method and and put it on screen. Um, but then you think of contemporaries like well, uh, Joaquin I think Phoenix. We we should describe what method acting is. Oh, I, I will. Okay. I, I definitely will because there are there are some uh, misconceptions about it as well. Uh, but think about like Joaquin Phoenix or um, Heath Ledger. You know, famously when when Heath Ledger died, a lot of people were talking about how you know his method acting, putting himself in the headspace in the headspace of the Joker uh, in the Batman movie, you know, sent him down a dark path. But really, method acting is is not about putting yourself so firmly in a role that you live it outside of the production, right? That is kind of an exaggerated version of the method that has become popularized by movie stars. But the the method in and of itself is, is something different. So what I've been doing over the last couple of weeks is, is talking about uh, many of the different techniques and and methods that I am familiar with and that I have used in acting to try to explain to people how actors act, how they actually put together a role from the ground up. And there's, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, so you, you mentioned the method and what the method actually is. Uh, the method is one type of acting. It's one technique that you can use to get into a role. And it actually comes from Konstantin Stanislavski. Uh, He created a system uh, that he used to try to get actors to be more honest and be more engaged on stage. Because what he was noticing was a lot of actors just kind of looking at the audience and saying their lines without much feeling and just kind of going through the motion of getting the text delivered without actually embodying any sort of honest character. So he created this system, uh, taught the system to uh, a bunch of different people in Russia, uh, and then it was brought to America by a group of American actors, Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler, and Stanford Meisner, and they all expanded and created their own versions of the system, which have largely become known as the method or method acting. So that's kind of the the history of it. But basically what it is, is you just, you think about your character beyond the text, right? So uh, if you read a book or watch a movie, uh, you only know a character's life if it is told to you or shown to you, right? Uh, Think about uh, the last movie that you watched, Miles. Likely the main character, you have no idea what their childhood was like uh, or what their old age was like or how they died or those types of things because those things weren't shown in the movie, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Using the method, you would think about those things, right? Uh, You would think about what happens beyond the text of the play. So when your character comes on stage and they're angry, why are they angry? Sometimes it'll be told to you. Uh, Sometimes they'll explain why they're angry. But sometimes you have to figure that out. And it can be as in-depth or as surface level as you need it to be. It's just all about trying to fill in those blanks to create a more holistic experience of the character Uh, and once you have all of those answers then you can kind of put yourself in that character's shoes uh, and make informed decisions based on what you think that character would do if they were real so that's one technique so this is like when a when you'd hear an actor talk about a role or something and they'd say that well i i envision that this character had a a difficult upbringing like maybe their dad was really hard on them or never gave them the approval he sought. And, th- and then they're, that's where they're trying to pull that into the role. Am I understanding that right? Yep, that's exactly it. Um, so there is a, a certain level of dramaturgy that goes on with this as well. And dramaturgy is just kind of the more uh, historical research and analysis of a play. And so what you might do is you might look at a character and try to answer some basic questions. Uh, Where were they born and where did they grow up? Uh, Knowing that might let you know if there's any sort of regional accent or dialect that you might want to try to incorporate in your performance of the character. Um, What did they what did they do for a living or, or what did they go to war? Things like that. Questions like that that may not be answered in the text, but, you know, there may be enough of a lead to kind of get to those answers, those can all inform how you actually perform the character. So, like, one- so like who, who decides that? So it's not in the text. So it's not necessarily in the script or anything. Is this something where the director tells the actor, 
like this is who this person is think of them like this or is it does the actor have the freedom to do that or does that change depending on their production or the movie that they're working on it, it does change depending on the production uh, and and more importantly depending on the director so some directors are very hands-on and want to uh, completely craft the experience from top to bottom uh, and present their vision as as highly realized as they can in which case they would you know do the research they would tell you this is a character who is this i want to see it like this do this kind of stuff uh there aren't a lot of directors who are like that many of uh Many of the best directors that I've worked with uh, are collaborative in nature. So you would do this research. And, and even if you did have a director who was very hands-on, you should still do this type of work in general. So you would go in, you would do the dramaturgy, you would answer these questions, and then you would propose them in rehearsal. Uh, proposal is uh, a huge part of putting a play together. So when an actor takes on a role, they're not just doing what's in the text, right? Uh, there's hundreds of moments, gestures, uh, bits, jokes, you know, all these types of things are proposed by the actor. If the actor doesn't propose them, they're, they're not implemented, right? So if you're, if you're a good actor, you're going to be proposing constantly, right? Every single time that you do a scene, you're going to be proposing something and a director will help guide you to the best solutions. So I will propose a hundred things throughout a rehearsal process and maybe seven of them will stick but you have to propose all those other ones to find out what actually ended up working it's kind of like the the revision process and writing as well you get it all out on the page first and then you revise and narrow down what's going to actually follow you through the performance so for an actor you got to be a little bit gutsy and brave to to throw those proposal out there because some of them are just going to be off the wall and totally rejected i'm guessing like director oh, might just absolutely. be like that's that's a horrible idea <laughs> yep and that that is the the thing about it so actors have to be really good with rejection just in general you're going to audition for a hundred plays you might get into 15 of them right you have to be good with rejection but that rejection doesn't stop once you get onto the show uh you're gonna you're gonna really propose some stinkers every once in a while you might do something that you think is super funny and it might get no laughs and everyone's like okay let's move on and that those moments suck but you have to be able to just get through them get it out of your system propose because you know if you if you tighten up those things and you're not trying you're not taking risks you could be leaving some of the best moments on the table uh that would that would you know elevate the production to something much better if you had the bravery to do it. So always be proposing, always be taking those risks. A good director won't make you feel bad for a bad proposal. Um, they'll, they'll just kind of move you forward to the next one and so on and so forth. So uh, that was that's, that's one method of acting, the method. Uh, but there are a lot of other different techniques. And when I was in college and I really started to dig into different types of theatrical methodology, I found that I bounced off the method really hard. It, it did not make a lot of sense to me. I was the type of person to wonder why you'd have to answer all those questions if the audience is never going to know any of them, right? Like, why do I have to know what my character ate for breakfast if that's not going to be conveyed to the audience in any way? Yeah, so like, I, like math, why should I, I have to show you quite a bit? Why should I have to show you my process if I got the right answer? Right. Um, now, there, there is a lot of value in doing that work. And now that I'm not as angsty as I was in my early 20s, I definitely see the value. But the, the stuff that really made a lot more sense to me is physical acting, right? So uh, one experience that has stuck with me is uh, when I first started engaging in a theatrical technique or methodology called Suzuki, uh, which <laughs> I, I'm going to explain it to you and you're going to wonder what the hell that has to do with acting in any way. So what we would do is the whole cast would line up on the stage side to side, shoulder to shoulder. And then we would stare into the middle horizon and we would kind of push our bodies into the floor, right? So we would really kind of like press all of our weight down into the floor as hard as we could. And then once we couldn't handle that pressure anymore, once we like literally could not push ourselves any further down into our feet, we would have to rocket our leg forward, like kick it up off the ground and then take a step forward. And we would repeat that over and over again across the entire stage. So that's how we would move across the stage. The caveat is 
we all had to do it at the exact same time. We couldn't look at each other. We couldn't talk. We couldn't make noise. We all had to, at the exact same time, take a step forward. And if we didn't do it at the same time, we'd have to go all the way back to the beginning. And we would do this for hours. That sounds kind of miserable. It was. It was kind of miserable. But it what it does is it instills uh, two things. It instills a sense of pressure and engagement. Uh, a lot of times on stage, you can kind of just start going through the motions, go on autopilot almost in terms of what you're doing and what you're saying. But Suzuki helps instill this sense of, of presence in your body. So as long as you're physically engaged the entire time, you are emotionally present on stage as well. And the other thing it allows you to do is create a connection with the other people in the cast, right? Once you figure out how to move all at the same time without talking to each other, you just start to get this sense of the energy in the room. And and, and that connection, again, once again, creates a more honest environment on stage. And so that type of technique, that creating that foundation of being present, engaged, and honest on stage is a great way to start building everything else up because it's kind of like the the, the foundation of, of, of anything, right? If you don't have the fundamentals, everything else kind of falls apart, right? So in sports, Miles, as a coach, you would drill students to do stuff that you know, weren't necessarily part of the game. In basketball, you would do, you know, you'd shoot baskets and you would do that kind of stuff, but you'd also run laps and do other exercises, I'm sure, as part of the training that weren't necessarily translated onto the court in a one-to-one sense, right? Yeah, routine beatings, you know. Sure, yeah. (laughs) Well, that's just, you know, that's just to break morale. Yes. Because you have to be able to build the character up from the ground. So that makes sense. Um, but that, that type of stuff goes into acting as well. You know, there are fundamentals to acting and there are uh, routines and exercises that you can do to train those types of things. Uh, and physical acting is a big part of that. The, the other big thing, kind of the thing that elevated me to uh, a level of like feeling like not only was I good at what I was doing and getting the results that I wanted to get, but I was also having a lot of fun with it because like it's one thing to to get good at something it's another thing to be good at it and to still enjoy doing it every single time right Mm. yeah i feel like when you when you monetize your hobby right you're good at it and you get consistent results but maybe you don't love it the same way that you used to and the thing that really kind of re-engaged me into enjoying what i was doing every night on stage was mask work and clowning so miles when i say clowning what do you think of like clowns fool right exactly (laughs) clowns and that uh like clowns use clowning right uh but not all clowns wear makeup and big shoes and red noses that kind of stuff but the techniques that clowns use to perform uh those are really great comedic techniques that you can do for any character right so uh, a great example of why clowns are endearing or why they're effective at the very least is that the clown is honest but the clown doesn't know what's happening and you do know what's happening as the audience member so you enjoy watching them earnestly attempt to do something and oftentimes fail comedically but there's an honesty there right and and that honesty is important for every step of the theatrical production because without again that fundamental underneath uh, you kind of lose you lose a lot in the performance uh mask work on the other hand you know what a mask is right Mm -hmm. imagine wearing a mask and thinking about what that does for an actor right so let's say i came up on stage and i was wearing a mask what do you think immediately from that hmm that you're hiding something. That I'm hiding something, or uh, at the very least, imagine you got up on stage, or just to, to give a speech or something, but you were wearing uh, a mask with a big smile on it. What what limits you now? What challenges do you have? I guess you can't use facial expressions. Yeah, you can't emote, right? The mask does all of that for you. So if you get up on stage with a big smile, uh, with a mask with a big smile, the audience already knows something immediately about you, right? But you can't change that with your face. You are immediately limited with your most expressive part of your body. So you have to try to make up for that with the other parts of your physicality, your gestures, the way that you move, that kind of stuff. And when you wear a mask in theater, you're forced to engage your physicality in a completely different way. The cool thing about mask work is you can take the mask off and continue to use those techniques 
to to create characters. So this week in the Pulse, I put together kind of a, a wrap up of of all of this stuff, and I took all of the things that we've talked about and put them all together to try to create a character. So I picked Ebenezer Scrooge because I feel like. Almost everybody is familiar with Ebenezer Scrooge as a character. You can kind of picture in your head what Scrooge might look like or act like just from the get-go. So I wanted to put all of these techniques together to try to create a unique take on Ebenezer Scrooge. So one thing that I like to do uh, when I'm creating any character is to take one word and try to embody it. So Miles, give me an emotion. Anger. Anger. Okay. Think about anger. And I'm going to ask you these questions. What does anger look like on your face, Miles? Um, in terms of like describing the face, I guess you'd like probably yeah. your eyes narrow, your your face gets tense, you're, you might get red. Right. Those, those types of things are easy. But then you start to ask that question for other parts of your body and then it gets more interesting. So what does anger look like in your hands? You probably ball up your fists, um, squeeze them tightly, that kind of thing. Right. Now, what about your legs? No idea. (laughs) Exactly. So then it's like, okay, what do, what do angry, I've got this face, I've got these hands. What do my arms do to follow these hands, right? There, you got these fists, maybe they feel good, kind of raised in the air. What is, what do angry shoulders look like? You bunch them up, right? You get them as tight as you can. What does an angry back look like? Now it's like you're hunching. You start to ask that question for every part of your body and you push it as far to the extremes as possible. So like if you're describing an angry face, it's not enough to have furled brows and a frown, right? It's like gritted teeth, a crinkled nose, like go as far as you possibly can with this in every part of the body. And then you start to ask yourself questions about like, now that I'm in this wild, weird, contorted form, how do I walk? right? What does this look like to move? How do I grab things off a table? How do I talk through this face that I've created without changing any of it, right? So like, imagine you create this like super twisted, gnarled face, and then without relaxing it at all, you try to say your lines, right? That's how I go about creating a character. And I push it to the extreme so that I can learn the most interesting parts of it. Because if I just kind of went 25%, I'm just a grumpy guy on stage. And that's kind of the extent of the fun that I can have with it. But if I push it to 100% and I'm this weird, twisted, angry goblin, now I can start to explore really silly or fun or interesting movements or ways of talking or all these types of things. And those will all go into creating this character that you build, right? So you Mm -hmm. take the physical side of it, you take the dramaturgy, ask yourself questions about where this person grew up. Do they have an accent? Can I do that accent through this face? Does the accent change the face? Does the face change the accent? You ask yourself all of those questions, and then when rehearsals start up, you've got yourself a really wonderful, weird place to start, and then you and the director together can mold that into something more approaching normal, right? But you always want to go as far as possible with it as early on so that you can pull it back into something that resembles a real person. So that's that's kind of my long-winded answer of how actors act. There's a ton of different ways that people will come into a character, but I think the most important thing to stress is that like anything, there are techniques and fundamentals that actors use to create their performances in the same way that basketball players run drills or writers do writing experiments, um, all of those types of things. It's the same thing on the stage. It just, you know, you might not think of it because you're watching somebody pretend to be somebody else. There's a lot that goes into that. Well, I think probably the average person who doesn't like read a lot about acting or movies or directing or anything like that you tend to think, well, that person is just charismatic and they can just do that and they can they just do an impersonation sort of thing. But you have to pull that from somewhere, which is what you discuss a lot in in this series in the pulse of all the different ways that they do it. I'm curious, like, what do you think somebody who just watches, not, not another actor, not a director, not somebody who's deep in the weeds and in, in the, the theory and method behind it, but just like what does knowing about acting do for the consumer? the audience member. Well, I think that you can you can start to pull 
like little glimpses of the the intentionality of things by by knowing these types of things. So if you look at character actors uh, like Will Ferrell, uh, who are doing these super exaggerated characters, look at like the most unique part of their physicality or their voice and know that that's probably where it started. Right. So most character actors are creating their characters not from whole cloth just out of the blue they're taking one thing and really hammering it home uh watching snl is a really great way to see this type of thing because characters have to be uh very quickly and immediately understandable by the audience and they have to do so many of them every week that you have to do something that is is easy but memorable and effective so you'll find characters like um stefan on snl Mm -hmm. has this really like interesting quirk with his hands right and like those types of things it's his hands and it's his voice that's really all i mean he's got hair and clothing and stuff but his character is just his hair and his hands that he's doing everything with um jim carrey is another great example of this watch his characters and see where they're coming from jim carrey is like exclusively that mask work that i was talking about right creating this twisted form and then seeing how it moves and how it talks um he is very rarely normal looking everything has an exaggerated expression to it and he keeps that expression as he delivers all of his dialogue so think like Ace Ventura and like the eyebrows, right? All of that goes into what he's doing or his work in the mask, right? I mean, that's very clearly mask work um, (laughs) in in terms of just like creating the super exaggerated face and then seeing how it moves and how it talks and that type of stuff. Um, So digging into this type of stuff and learning these basics allow you to kind of pick out little things like oh hey i can see that that like the mouth was super important i'm I'm a very much a mouth builder with my characters i come up with a very fun mouth to start with and that will inform how the character talks and like it, it just informs general body like next time i'm in the office i'll show you my old man impression you can see it's all very much the corners of my mouth inform literally every other part of the hmm. character um but yeah you start to pick up on little things like that and i think that it it just adds to the experience of watching your favorite movie or TV show to be like, oh, hey, there's that technique or this actor is really good at this voice because, you know, this thing or, or that type of stuff. You, you'll start to pick up on those little uh, intricacies. Yeah. One of the things that I've had to as I started to go to more of the, like the local theater at first, everything can seem like overacting when you see it on the stage. If you're not used to going to something like for live theater. But then you realize a lot of that is a, minimizing the set so you have to do more with your body to to create a scene and a feel and actually just project your voice. And you have to be, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but you have to be a little bit over the top just to get it across when you're like, that. it's not superimposed on a big screen. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That the the number one difference between film acting and stage acting is just the the how much you can crank it up on stage acting because you have to. Right. If somebody's sitting at the back of the Peninsula Players Theater, uh, they have like the physicality is super important because you're not getting a lot of the facial expression or the minute gesture. You need to see bigger things. So like. Uh, what may seem like a big gesture on screen is actually almost imperceptible in theater because you're so much further away. Like at the closest you're going to be to somebody is 10, 15 feet away from them. So those gestures have to become much more exaggerated. Your facial expressions have to become exaggerated. That's why masking, like actually wearing masks in theater started, because when you think about plays being performed in coliseums, There was no way people in the back could see your face or tell who you were. But all of a sudden, if you came on stage in, you know, this big Hercules mask, even people at the very back knew who you were immediately. Hmm. Right. There was no guesswork involved. Uh, Now that, you know, theaters aren't necessarily that big, things have changed, but the, the fundamentals are still there in terms of the exaggeration. Yeah, it might look like overacting if you're used to film and television, uh, but if if they weren't doing that and you were sitting at the back of the theater, you would think that it was a boring show. Right. I totally get that. And But I, I didn't the first few times I would go to shows up here and I, I, I didn't quite get it. But then as you get used to it and that form and, and you recognize it as something different than movie making and screen acting, then you can kind of get your yourself into that mindset. 
Right. Uh, this is something that I am super passionate about. It basically was the vast majority of my theatrical training in college. So I've really enjoyed putting together this series of articles uh, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, the newest one is in this issue and they're all available online. So if you want to read all four parts of them, I definitely recommend people checking that out. You guys have really let me go wild with the theater section this year. Uh, so I've, I've been able to put out a lot of really interesting stuff. Uh, if this in any way interests you or you want to learn more about theater history or, or or just kind of like some different things about theater than than what you might actually think about on a day to day or just in terms of like something other than, hey, the show is going on. Uh, I, I recommend checking through the theater section on DoorCountyPulse.com because uh, you guys have let me put out a bunch of really cool stuff this year and uh, I'm happy to share it with people. No, it's great for understanding what what goes into it? Like, and this week you talk a lot about like the Charles Dickens character and Scrooge and, and how that comes together and how would you, you would go about it, which, uh, you know, it's a, it's a good time of year to, to talk about that. Um, but there's an old school character and at least in that one, it's a little different because you have, you know, so many scores and scores and scores of versions of that to dig into. And, and obviously Dickens text to pull from, but I, I recommend people checking it out. It's a pretty cool series. Right. Well, and, and just, you know, as we're wrapping up here, one one last thing on that. The the coolest part about these types of theatrical techniques is that uh, let's say you have no idea who Ebenezer Scrooge is, right? But just by taking a couple lines from the text, which I do in the article, you can create a character that is immediately recognizable as Scrooge without having to dig into, you know, other people's portrayals of him. That's a big thing in theater. You, you very often don't want to look at how these characters have been portrayed in the past because you want to bring your own interpretation to the role. So being able to create a character without looking at any other version of that character, just pulling things from the text and then creating creating the character physically that way, I think is a really useful skill for actors who want to try to create a new version of something or a unique take on a character. Mm -hmm. So with that, Miles, uh, thank you for letting me ramble on about theater. Uh, I I won't do it as often as uh, I have been lately uh, in the future as we go along because there will be, you know, hopefully shows to go see next year. (laughs) Um, But uh, uh, I appreciate it. Now that we're kind of uh, going a little bit long on the podcast, I think we will wrap up for this week. Uh, Miles, thank you so much for chatting with me, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.